Hey guys, welcome to The Real Shit with Brett and Wit. This is Whitney. This is Brittany. And this is the podcast that's here to make you feel normal in your everyday life. Okay, you guys, we're really excited to have our sweet friend Danny back from last week, her part one of her husband's journey through prescription drug addiction and what she went through. We've got her back again. Uh, we are so grateful to get the rest of this journey and this story. And Danny, say hi to everybody. Thanks for being here with us again. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. Okay, so uh, recap from last week. If you didn't listen to it, go back, listen to that one first. You need to listen to that episode first. Um, but if, you, if you're joining with us now, we kind of left off through Danny's husband's journey of how it all kind of began, where it got started, his journey going through all of the, you know, figuring out um, what's working for them, what's not. We kind of ended where they had moved back. Um, to their, you know, kind of home neighborhood. And Danny, why don't you pick it up from there and let us know kind of where you guys are after, after your move. All right. So we actually were, were originally from Orem. We decided to move to Vineyard, which is just a mile down the road. Um, at this point he was still on his medication, um, but he decided to take it consistently after the suicide attempt. And he had, at this point he had been on them consistently um, and continued to be on them consistently for two years um, just to avoid any of the symptoms that he was having, obviously, by trying to quit, which were the suicidal thoughts um, and then headaches and stuff like that. So we had just kind of come to terms with that's probably going to have to be a medication that he'll have to be on the rest of his life. Um, we went into the doctors to get a refill, and she had said, oh, to keep it you know, to keep you steady, you have to keep upping your dose every once in a while. Um, that kind of made us nervous. And, and then when she said that she wanted to double his dose and put him on gabapentin as well, we were very nervous. Um, and then at that point, we knew, like, this, it can't happen. We yeah. can't just keep upping his dose forever. I mean, the medications that he has been on throughout his life and how we felt like she was prescribing these too easily. We call her the candy doctor. Um, and then now she wants to put him on another medication that essentially does the same thing as clodopin and then also up his clodopin dose by double what he was taking. We decided, no, it can't happen that way. It just it's can't. Just, it's got to be such a scary thing too, because it's like, where do you keep going from there? Like if you just exactly. keep upping and upping and upping, where does it end? You know? It's exactly. Like and that's where, that's why we decided like it, it literally, it can't end. And at one, at what point is he taking too much? And I mean, he, at this point he was only 27, 26 how or no 27. So I'm like, how is he going to, you know, he still has the rest of his life. So what he's on a hundred milligrams of clodopin by the time he's 50, like it, yeah. it, it yeah. can't work that way. So, and that's when we knew, like if it was something that he could stay on a consistent amount for forever, it would be different. You know, I think I, honestly, I think if he had said that, I think that he would still be on the medication, but knowing that we had to keep up in our dose for him, it just, it made sense 
we just thought, why not start now? We're our, he's already at a, high, a pretty high dose for you know, his age and for what he's going through. We may as well start now because, I mean, it's, it's going to take some time. It's something that changes your brain so drastically and how you think and how you do things that it's not like something that you can just quit. Obviously, he tried and it, it caused... Right. Well, that was going to be my question. So was there... Once you guys realize, like, we, we can't do this for the rest of his life, you know, he can't be on upping the dose continually, continually. I mean, was there a lot of fear and thinking, okay, we got to get off this, but he's already tried and that it did not go well. So how are we going to yeah. do this? It, it scared. I mean, for him, no, he wasn't scared. He was excited, which was kind of new for me because... I hadn't seen that in him in a long time, but he hated this medication. I, the best way I can explain this medication, honestly, based off of what he's expressed to me, a lot of ways he's expressed himself with how he feels, with how this medication took over, is with music and movies. And have you seen the movie Venom? Yes. Okay. You know I how haven't. you haven't? Okay. That's one, your Brett. tour tonight. Go watch it. <laughs> and it's got Tom Hardy in it, so you can't go wrong. And okay, okay. Oh, yeah. It's it basically, it's a, he's a host for, I don't know, what is it, Whitney? Is it an oh, alien? Alien, yeah. So he's a host for this, like, evil alien thing. Um, he, he said that when he, w- like, when he felt like he needed that pill, he felt a draw to that pill so strong that he felt like he's being taken over by something evil. And then when he would take it, he said, like, I literally feel like evil inside of me. There's a song called My Darling from Eminem. And it's actually Eminem's music to what his life was with Benzos. And it's actually, I can't listen to it. I don't know how he listens to it. It's a good outlet for him somehow. But every time he hears it he's like that's exactly what it was it's exactly it's like I couldn't have explained it any better so I, maybe listeners go listen to that song but be ready because it's evil it's not a good one um anyway so he felt he felt like it was taking over his body so he was excited to get that out and to feel like himself again um me I was terrified because of what happened last time he tried to get off um, he reassured me multiple times, you know, it's not going to be like that. He says he's not going to stop cold turkey. He's going to follow the doctor's orders to make sure he gets it off, you know, gets off safely. But again, to me, that didn't even really mean much for a couple of reasons. One, he was awful at taking it consistently. And so I thought he'd kind of just jump the gun again. And two, I mean, we're trusting a doctor to get him off of a medication that we trusted her and she's the one that put him on it. So I didn't feel trust for her to get him off like I should have. Yeah. Well, not that I should have trusted her because she was an idiot, but I, I don't feel like I, I feel like the person who should have been getting him off of this, we should have trusted them fully mm-hmm. and I didn't trust her. And so you know, we ended up having to take things into our own hands and we did our own research and had to kind of go our own way. 
Um, I don't want to say I recommend that because there are a lot recommend? of things. What would you recommend for someone that's in the same area where maybe they don't trust their doctor or they're kind of in that same situation? What, what would you recommend they do? Find a doctor you trust, whether it takes five or 10 appointments, find somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, I just did a ton of research. I mean, a ton of research. And then we watched videos and, and documentaries all about these medications. And then I felt knowledgeable with it, but I'm not educated like a doctor should be in, in this field. So we kind of jumped the gun and did in our own way. It worked for us, luckily. Um, but once we started, you know, getting deeper into our research as he was getting off of these medicines, I realized there are a lot of dangerous things that can happen, like seizures that can literally kill you. Um, sometimes, um, with this medication specifically coming off of it, people will just die in their sleep. There's a lot of things That's scary. that can, yeah, I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't, honestly, I didn't think to look up symptoms or like what could happen if you get off negative things that could happen as you were getting off. I was looking at what are withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. and how, how do we get off of this medication? Not how do we do it safely? And I, I didn't even think that that yeah. would be a thing. I just didn't. Um, previously, I mean, years and years ago, I watched my cousin detox off of drugs and it was hard for him, of course, but it didn't look like something that was impossible. And I, I mean, I know now that that's just my, that was my view on it. I had no idea what was going on with him and how hard that was for him. Um, but I think that kind of is what made me think, oh, it's possible. We just have to be consistent with what we're doing and, you know, keep trying and keep pushing rather than say, oh, it's getting hard. I'll just go back. I thought that was the key. Just keep pushing one day at a time. And it is, that is the key. You can't just be like, oh, it's too hard. I'm just going to take one pill today and then I'll start again tomorrow. It, you can't. Right. You know, the, the, the amount that you do, whenever you do that, you're putting your brain through trauma because it's hard to be on it and off of it. Then when you're on and off of it, you know, like a roller coaster, your brain is going crazy. So it's just going to make it harder. So I knew that consistency was key, but I also didn't know that there were a lot of health issues and, and things like death that could occur from coming off of it. We learned recently that there are two things that can kill you when you detox, and it's benzodiazepines and alcohol. I had no idea that you could die from that. I had no idea, especially alcohol. For some reason, that really that shocked me. Yeah. I didn't think you could die Alcoholism from Alcoholism is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had no idea. So it, it freaked me out to know that we had to start this process because honestly, for the last two years, I kept thinking, you know what? He's kind of come to terms with the fact that he just has to be on this medication. And he had, and he took it every day at the same time and he was doing good. And so to feel like, 
hope because I thought we were done with the craziness to now fear that we can get through this next portion. It was, it was hard and I felt very lost. I don't even know if that's the right word. I was so confused and lost and sad and terrified because I almost lost my husband to this. And I'm, I kept thinking if I almost lost him once, how he, how easy is it going to be to lose him again? Right. And, and that was, that was my thought every day, you know, every day he'd go to work and that was my thought. Is he going to be okay? Is he going to make it home? So. So in your, in your research, is this where you came across the life of Lisa Lange, the documentary that was done about, about benzos? Is this what kind of solidified your guys' decision to get off of these or? So if you haven't watched that yet, I highly recommend all of the listeners go watch that. Um, it was actually, we were, I'm pretty sure we were at my mom and dad's house for, um, Halloween. And they were like, Hey, there's this segment with life with Lisa Ling. It's about benzos. You should watch it. So we went downstairs. They had recorded it for us and we watched it. And, Oh, it was hard because he had never talked to anybody with the same addiction for one, for two. I don't even think that he had fully admitted to himself that he was an addict. And then three, you know, they're talking to people who have made it through and who are officially off of the medication that, you know, they did it successfully. And then they're also talking to families of people who did not make it, who ended up committing suicide. And so seeing both ends, it gave me hope, but it also freaked me out. (laughs) You know what I mean? Seeing that it is possible. I mean, this poor family, their son, Jonathan, ended up killing himself and they thought he was getting better. And I, I, it, it scared me to know that that could be our fate. But then watching these other people who successfully got off of it also gave me so much hope knowing that like my husband is strong. He's made it this far. He can be one of them. He can be the person that gets off of it successfully. And, and that's actually like how we decided to do it on our own. Because when we finally, we ended up talking to his candy doctor about this segment with Lisa Lang and told her everything that we had learned. And I'm not saying Lisa Lang knows it all, but in the segment, she had talked to multiple doctors and they had said different things about benzos and how they're awful for you. You shouldn't be on them for more than six weeks and all sorts of things. And so we felt like it was probably a more reliable source than just some family practice doctor who didn't know what she was talking about as far as colotopin and benzodiazepines. And when we told her about that, she was very like, oh, no, it's totally fine to be on it long term. Very just brushed it under the rug. Like, she, first really off, care for she didn't want to. No, no, not at all. And honestly, I don't think she wanted to admit that she could have been wrong or that she could have started this whole addiction process for him by putting him on too much for too long. And I hope one day that she realizes that that's what happened and that she's more careful with other patients. I really do. Um, 
But when we watched The Life with Lisa Lang, that's when we decided how we were going to do it on our own. After the doctor had said that, we were like, obviously, we can't trust her. And I kept saying, we should see a psychiatrist, Curtis. Like, let's just go see one. And he was like, no, I don't need to see a psychiatrist. And this is why. He had a friend who was also on a lot of benzodiazepines for mental health who ended up in a mental hospital for um, suicidal thoughts. And his family had decided to put him in the hospital to make sure he was okay. So in his mind, I think he put together psychiatrists. Like you're, you're only like, how do I say this gently? If you go to a psychiatrist, your only road is going to lead you to a mental hospital. Hospital. Yeah. yeah. Or that like you, like almost like that he wasn't to that point. Like he wasn't struggling that hard yet. Or he, I think honestly, I think in his mind, he felt like you had to be crazy to yeah. see a psychiatrist. And that, that's so not it. I want everybody to know that psychiatrists specialize in mental illness. It does not mean you're crazy. It means that you have a mental illness and you need to see somebody who specializes in that. So, you know, that's when I decided, well, I mean, our best option here now is to just do it ourselves. And we had watched on that segment with Lisa Ling, a girl who microdosed and she did it a little bit differently than we decided to do it. And um, she was able to get her clodopin in liquid form so she was weighing it with water and taking it throughout the day, uh, all these micro doses to, you know, wean her off. We decided to do it a little bit different and decided to jump from, you know, we decided to cut his, his um, milligrams in half to kind of see how he would react to see how much we could start with. Because I mean, microdosing, they're literally taking one one hundredth of a milligram off every day. It t- it took her, I think, two years. Yeah, that's a long, long term plan. A long time. Mm-hmm. And so we were hoping to be able to do it a little quicker. So we thought we would jump with just seeing how much we can get away with getting him off of in the very beginning. So we were at, we ended up being able to successfully get him off half in the first week, which that's huge. And then we kind of started to taper from there. And I won't get into the details of the taper because it was, it's very confusing. It's very long and a lot of math. And it honestly, we started thinking that we were going to do it like this girl in that segment and it ended up not working for Curtis. And so we had to create our own. So if that is something that you're doing, you, you do need to see what's best for you and do kind of trial and error for you. With yeah, if anyone is out, yeah, with a doctor, but if anyone <laughs> has any questions about that, like reach out to Danny and she'll, she'll let you, she'll give you some more detail on how, yeah. how they went about that. Yeah. Very confusing, but it was, it was an amazing process. That's for sure. Um, he had to keep a notebook with every single day on it, what he, um, what he took, how he felt that day. Um, what time he took it, what time he felt it wore off. We kept a very detailed book on all of that. So it is, it is a very strenuous process, but it, it worked. So we're, <laughs> we're thankful for it. Yeah. So he was able to um, wean himself off doing this. Yep. Yes. So in the, in the process, she had prescribed him gabapentin um, 
to help him get off. She told him he could get off in two weeks. We tried it. That was unsuccessful. Um, but she had prescribed him so much gabapentin. I, the bottle, I think, had like 168 pills for the month. Oh, wow. She said it. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, when I say candy doctor, I don't, I don't take that lightly. She said that it was safe, that he could literally take as much as he needed. If he felt like he needed more, he could take another pill. And so, of course, I'm like, okay, well, this is a girl who got him on Clodopin. I'm going to hurry and do the research on this. After doing research on gabapentin, it was not an easy research. Like Clodopin, I could look it up and I could get loads of information quick. Gabapentin is a newer medication. Um, I don't want to say super new, but I would, I would say within about seven years. And it is pretty much Clodopin. It does the exact same thing as clodopin, but they didn't consider it a benzodiazepine. Since January 19th of this year, it has become a controlled substance, um, meaning you cannot take as much as you want and be fine. So I'm very glad that we didn't do that. But when I had found all this research, I told Curtis, uh-uh, if you're going to take it, you're taking it as prescribed. You're not taking any more. Because yeah. in my mind, in my opinion, I think that it is just clodopin, just not as old of a medication to hit a class like the benzo class yet. So that's what we did. We did not follow that. We actually, when all of this was said and done, we ended up having a full bottle of that and we, you know, disposed of it correctly. But it, that was pretty fascinating to see. <laughs> how many pills he was on. It was disgusting. And I wish we would have taken pictures. Um, Danny, at one point you guys, you guys tried to get him help, right? Was this while he yep. was microdosing and trying to get off of it? I know you guys went to the state. When, when yes. did that happen? So he, when we decided to not use the gabapentin, he decided to just do the microdose on his own. We had, gotten him through that. He, you know, he had started about November and on December 24th was his, um, last dose. So let me explain from November till about a week before the 24th, he had completed his microdose and we were thrilled. You know, it took about a month and a half and we were thrilled. Um, but he was still having withdrawals. He felt like he couldn't talk to people. He felt like he couldn't have a conversation or hold a conversation. Um, he just felt, oh, what did, what's the word that he said? He felt awkward. In all reality, he felt awkward. Um, and he didn't want to ruin the Christmas party <laughs> that we were having. So he took double his dose. He took four pills on Christmas Eve so that he knew he could get through Christmas Eve and Christmas Day without struggling and ruining things for the family. I did not know about that until after, or else I would have been livid because he had worked so hard to come off of that. That I, once he told me, I was, uh, when he told me, I thought he relapsed. In my mind, I'm like, great, now we have to start over. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 
luckily he he i told him like you know we just need to just see how long you can because it was only four pills it wasn't anything consistent it wasn't every day it was just one day maybe you can just back away from it and not have any more problems so his last pill was christmas eve um he didn't take anything after that to this day he is clean he has not had one clodopin or gabapentin or anything throughout that time and um, he is successfully clean um but on on the 3rd of january sorry i've got like a timeline with dates because i was very like wanting to make sure i got that right his withdrawals started to get way worse. I mean, he had had withdrawals, obviously, pretty much since October. Um, feeling awkward, couldn't hold a conversation. He would shake, his hands would shake, um, and headaches and locked jaw, and he couldn't, he'd have restless legs, but it was nothing that he couldn't handle. Everything was pretty much just level. It was annoying, but nothing crazy. On January 3rd, they got so bad so bad. Um, I started having to literally take care of him all night long. I was rubbing his thighs. Um, his arms would twitch and jolt. So I'd rub his arms. I was rubbing his neck, putting heat packs on him. We bought two weighted blankets. <laughs> I bought a 15 pound weighted blanket and a 20 pound weighted blanket. He had 35 pounds on him, like trying to get him to calm down. Um, and then on the eighth, they got to the point where they were unbearable. He could not, he could not handle more. And at that point he, he almost passed out in my living room. And then when he kind of came to, he begged and just pleaded, find me help. I need help. I had a detox facility. I need help. I need something. He's like, or else I'm going to go get my flaw pen and hate because I can't do this anymore. I can't imagine being a spouse and having, like, I can't imagine watching my husband go through that and beg for help. Like, what, oh, what is that like? Like, I can't even imagine. Well, uh, honestly, I think as a wife and mother, isn't that our job? Like, aren't we just supposed to feel like we always have the answer? Yeah. You know, like on, on how to help and how to make things better. I mean, a little kid has an owie. You know that a kiss and a Band-Aid is going to fix that. Kiss and a Band-Aid is not going to fix this. And I felt very hopeless because I didn't have a clue. Nothing online tells you how to help withdrawals because in all reality, there's not really anything that helps it. There right. are little things you can do to help it feel better. Like he literally took five or more showers every single day and um, massages helped that kind of stuff, but nothing helped it go away. Nothing gave him relief. So as a wife, seeing him struggle like that and then plead for me to find him help, I felt broken because I didn't even know where to start. I am a Google freak. I, I Google is my best friend. I used her for everything, but there are things that are online, they're so different than what you would expect when you're typing in things like detox facility or um, coming off of drugs because there are so many, mm -hmm. so many different drugs you're coming off of and they're all so different. So I really didn't find a ton. I ended up finding a program through the state where um, they put you in like the state hospital, unfortunately. 
um, and you see a psychiatrist and stuff like that, but they get you on the right medications to come off of drugs safely to make sure you're not having that seizure and make sure you're not, you know, going to sleep and not waking up, stuff like that. You're being monitored 24 seven. Um, so I took him into the state and he got denied because he wasn't abusing the medication. They said, obviously you're addicted to the medication, but you're not abusing it. So we can't help you. I felt so abandoned and I'm sure he did too. I mean, I'm like, okay, so you will only help him if he gets worse. But yeah, he starts here, really abusing these. Yeah. And I'm like, but we're here asking for help before he wants it to get gets off. worse. Yes. I'm like, he wants, this is, he wants to do this. Why are we not, why is there not a program for people like that? I thought, oh, because he must be one in a million people who are addicted to drugs, you know, the, uh, who didn't want to be addicted to drugs, someone who got addicted to drugs because of a doctor. I thought, oh, there's probably hardly any people like him out there. Well, they gave us a phone number for um, a facility called Kick the Habit. And they said he specializes in Klonopin. And so we felt cool, like this is obviously the guy. So we went and saw him. Um, our appointment was on January 10th. So you know, it had been a few days of complete unbearable withdrawals at that point. Um, at the appointment, this guy was colder than cold. I don't know what he's been through, but he was cold. He act, It was very transactional. There was no emotion in it, which I thought at first maybe he couldn't have emotion in this type of field because it's a very, you know, sensitive thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, you get attached, then then what? Um, but he was just a cold guy. He just was, he didn't care about his patients in my opinion. Um, so he put Curtis on Librium. Librium is another benzo, but he kept assuring us that he needed to be on Librium to stop the withdrawals and to wean himself off of Librium, like to do a taper would make the withdrawal stop dead in its tracks. And at that point, we were both so desperate that that's, you know, we trusted him again. Um, so he started him on a three-a-day taper. He also put him on 60 milligrams of propranolol. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's a beta blocker, and it's made for high blood pressure. Um, but he prescribed it for anxiety through all of this. Mm -hmm. um, it's literally made to stop adrenaline kind of interesting. Um, and then he was also prescribed, I can't remember the name, but it was a low grade sleep medication um, because he couldn't sleep at night. And this doctor told us straight up, you know, you're looking at a good six months to a year before you get a good night's sleep. So be prepared for that. So we had the low grade oh. sleep medication that was not a benzo. So I want to make sure that's known, but he was on the Librium, which is a benzo. So that was scary for me, but you know, he was safe. And that's what, that's all that mattered. So I, he had told us that Librium is not addicting or uh, was very, um, was like the easiest benzo to have without being addicting. Um, so we just 
trusted him. We just did. Um, so on that taper, we, he was supposed to be completely off of the medication, the Librium medication, um, by the 20th. Curtis did not like going there because he felt like a drug addict. Yeah. You know, there were people there that were um, required to be there by the court. And he didn't like feeling like that. And it was... He didn't want to be uh, compared to them or he wasn't living that kind of... Yeah. Well, he, he said, he kept telling me this. This is not my choice. I did not choose to be on these medications. I did not choose to take clodipin to get high. I did not choose to do this. I did not choose this life. And it was hard for him to feel like, even though he didn't choose it, that's what he was. Yeah. And it took, it took a hot minute for him to realize that he was a drug addict, whether it's his choice or not. That's what he is. And it took a lot for him to like actually say that out loud. And now he can say that and don't take this the wrong way, but he can say it with pride. He can say that now, yes, I'm a drug addict. Am I on drugs? Nope. I'm clean. I'm sober. And he feels good about he that. feel accomplished. Yeah. Yes. For very sure. accomplished. Very. So we decided to not go back to this place because, you know, and I, I, I'll be honest, at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, Curtis, I need you to stay at this place. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep – I mean, I, to say I was behind on housework is an understatement. To say I was behind on life was an understatement. My kids were a hot mess. Everything was just not getting taken care of because I felt like I lived on Google researching what I can do to help him, where we can take him. And then if I wasn't on Google, I was massaging his legs or massaging his neck or making him lunch or helping him get in the, in the shower. He was in the shower so much. We ended up putting a, a stepping stool bench in there with the towel that he could just sit there for hours until the hot water ran out because that's the only thing that like remotely helped. I, I needed him to stay there because I finally felt a little bit of relief from all of the things I was doing for him. And when he said he didn't want to go back, I was like, I can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. Um, so that's when I started. I spent probably four hours looking up different facilities he could go to. The problem was I couldn't find a facility that was a detox facility that would take him and help him even though he was already off of the medication because mm -hmm. they only help you get off of it when you're actually on it. He was off of it. He was just having withdrawals and, um, you know, going through all the withdrawal symptoms. So that's what we needed help with. So finding a facility for that was near impossible. Um, but I changed the verbiage in my search engine and I started typing in um, rehab facilities. Because I figured that's the next step, you know, is rehab, not detox. That's done. Yes. The next step is rehab. So I started looking up rehab facilities and I got, uh, it was like the magic button. <laughs> I got so many different 
you know, options of places to call. So I started calling. I probably called eight in like an hour period and just wrote down all the information I needed from what the type of, you know, services they provide, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, the cost, because unfortunately that's something that we had to think about. And if they took insurance and how they work with insurance, and I, I wanted to know all the information on all of these places. Um, and I ended up talking to this guy and he was different, really, really different. The, the people that I talked to in the beginning were a lot like the guy from Kick the Habit. Um, very transactional. You could just tell they didn't have much sympathy for what these people were going through. And I knew at that point, if they don't have sympathy, they're treating them like drug addicts. And if they're being treated like drug addicts, their chance of, you know, successfully finishing the rehab is probably low. Cause if you, if the people running the rehab don't have faith in these people, they're not going to make it. So we, uh, I ended up talking to this guy and he was unbelievable. He was, I can't remember the name of his place. I wish I could, um, but he was in midway and he was like, I actually have like a sister company that's in, in Linden. And I was like, Oh, that's perfect. Cause we're in vineyard. And he was like, let me give you his number. So he gives me Dustin's number and Dustin is the guy that kind of helped get people going in this rehab center. The rehab center was called Reflections. And talking to Dustin and the guy before him was unreal. And this is why they have been through it. They were previously drug addicts. That makes such the difference, you know, when they understand what Yeah, exactly what they're going through. through. It was I like started bawling on the phone to both of them. I'm like, it is such like a breath of fresh air to talk to you. I'm like, and I told him, and at this point I didn't even know he was a drug addict. They said, you seem like you have sympathy for these people. He goes, Oh, I do. I've been there. And I was like, wait, what? And he explained it to me. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, I, I, that was unbelievable to know that. So we decided to set up a meeting with reflections to kind of get a little bit more of like an idea if this is going to work for him or not. So our meeting was on the 23rd of January. We met with a girl named Liz. She explained everything down to like what they're, what they do every day, what they go over, what their goals are. Something that I loved about this facility is that they, they really did stress how important it is and how much they work on coping skills after addiction not just getting you through the withdrawals but like how you're going to cope because honestly once you're an addict you are always an addict right so it's learning how to if you have a trigger what you do for that trigger so that that doesn't happen again so just stuff like that and how to how to control your anxiety or anything that caused you to get addicted to this medication which was huge because I knew that there was a chance that now that he's off of the medication that he was put on for anxiety and depression, that he might start having anxiety and depression just regularly again, and then we'd have to square one. So it was nice to know that there was a long-term plan, not just how are we going to make you feel okay right now. So we were in. We knew that that's what we wanted to do. So he started meetings that Monday, which was the 27th. and. Um, in the beginning, he was going Monday through Thursday, and 
he would go from 6 to 8 p.m. So it was not inpatient. It was outpatient, which was great because he could still go to work and still like, you know, function, be a part of the family and not feel completely trapped. So that was, that was really nice to know that. Um, how those meetings went in the beginning is he would have a group. Um, he called, I thought they were AA meetings. That's not what he called it. Um, recovery meetings. Okay. So how the, how the day went was they would start with a recovery meeting where it was a group session and everybody would come in as a group. There would be a therapist kind of hosting the meeting and everybody would talk about you know, how their day went or what they're struggling with or anything like that. And they would also tell their story. And that was really, really important for Curtis in the very beginning to, you know, hear his story and to hear, or, uh, hear other people's stories, to compare them to his and, and to realize that he's not the only person who's gotten addicted to a drug and become a drug addict because of a doctor. And so that was huge for him. And, and when he was finally okay to admit that he was a drug addict because he knew that that word wasn't just what, you know, a lot of people think it is. It's a lot more than that. And it can mean a lot more than that. So that was kind of his turning point. Um, And then after that, they would have a one-on-one therapy session. And then once a week, he would meet with a doctor to kind of go over the medications that he was on to try and get him off of different things. So the first day he went, he met with um, a doctor to kind of go over the medications that the doctor at Kick the Habit had put him on and to know if that's, you know, if they wanted to continue on that or if he should switch things up. At that time, we found out that he was being completely overdosed by propranolol. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Propranolol by 50 milligrams a day. Um, She says she never starts anybody off on a higher dose than 10 milligrams and he was on 60. So that was... That was, you know, hard for us to hear. I, yet again, we were let down by somebody else. Um, uh, we also learned that the Librium was causing more harm than good because it was another benzo. And, you know, when he was going through the withdrawals again, he was withdrawing from Librium, not Clodopin. The Clodopin was out of his system. So he had been through withdrawals multiple times, and that was, that was hard for him. Um, so the doctor told him this, we could do a taper of all the medications. Um, but she also said that the benzo, which is the Librium, was a small enough dose that she felt that he could get off of it successfully just by going cold turkey. Like there wasn't a risk with that. And so, and he pretty much had already been off of it for about a week because so the last pill. He, before he went to rehab, he microdosed and got off the medication he was on, but these other medications that this doctor prescribed to try to help him get off of that was made in another dependency. Okay. So that's what he's trying to get off of now in rehab. Yes. So something the doctor explained was this, his mind had been an addictive mind. You took that addiction away. And so that mind is literally grasping at straws to hook onto anything and be addicted to anything. So when that first doctor kicked the habit, gave him Librium, his brain became instantly dependent on Librium because it was something to replace the Klodopin. So then he had to detox from that. Yes. Sorry about that. And so, yeah, essentially he had been detoxing from that since his last day of taking it, which was like the 20th. 
because that's when his taper on that ended. So we, sh we just decided we're not going to continue on with that. We're just going to stop it. He had already been off of it, so we're, we're good. So at this time, Curtis had quit all medications. And I want to also throw this in here. Something that kind of helped him get through all of these other medications as he was detoxing, he kind of started to use Zen, which is a nicotine pouch. And um, he would also use or, or drink energy drinks. And these, both of these things were known, uh, at least the nicotine for sure. I don't really believe the energy drink, but the nicotine for sure was known to help people get off of drugs. And so he didn't want to pick up smoking. So he just used a nicotine patch, a um, little pouch that like went in his mouth and that it did help him. So at this point though, in this rehab, they say like, you're not supposed to smoke or drink or have energy drinks or Zin. I guess that was a really big thing is a lot of people there had been on Zin. So that was one of their things is you're not supposed to do that. So he quit everything. So he went through all those withdrawals, getting off of this, you know, majorly addictive medication. And now he has to quit anything else in his life that was addicting. And he compared it to this. I love food. I'm just going to throw that out there. I love food. And he's like, it would be, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We'll have a taco night. <laughs> he was like, Danny, it would be like me telling you, you couldn't eat Chinese food or tacos ever again. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> that was that like, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. So he felt for a while, like anything that he enjoyed in life was taken from him. And that was really hard for him. But on my end, I just kept thinking, all of these things are triggers. Your, your Klonopin, or I mean, excuse me, the nicotine pouches, the Zin, the energy drinks, alcohol, those are all triggers. Yeah, you're replacing one addiction for another. For another. And if you're not, I couldn't handle that. I, I knew that it could completely replace his addiction. He could become a complete alcoholic. He could completely maybe even pick up smoking. I was terrified that by him wanting to have at least one thing would mean that it wouldn't just be like every once in a while that it would just be full blown addiction onto that thing. And that freaked me out. And luckily that's not, that wasn't the case, but you know, it was, it, it terrified me. And he ended up quitting everything. He was done with everything. Okay. Um, but he decided one day that he wanted to try an energy drink. <laughs> and I, it sounds so stupid now that I think about it, but I was so mad. I saw him buy it at the grocery store. I'm like with him. I'm like, uh, excuse me. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I was pissed. And I didn't say anything until we got in the truck and I heard that the can lid open. And then I like flew off the handle. I'm like, do you really think that that's a good idea? Are you really going to drink that? Are you I kind of freaked out. And then he felt that I was overreacting, which I, I definitely could have been. I was very emotional, obviously, from everything that I'd been through. But I hate that word, overreacting. I know. Like, I really I'm do. Not overreacting. That's a trigger I'm word reacting right there. perfectly <laughs> for me, right? <laughs> are we overreacting or do we have a reason to act like this? That's what yes, I like. For sure. It's true. But the thing, I, and I said this, I said, I'm not overreacting. I'm acting perfectly for my emotions right now. 
this is how I'm feeling right now. And I'm scared. And you just freaking opened an energy drink in front of me. Like, I don't think you could possibly have rubbed that in my face anymore. Yeah. Um, he explained that he just wanted to feel like he could buy it. I don't know. I didn't. Well, there was probably an element to him where he felt like his freedom was taken away a little yes. bit. Just like he yes. had all this control and, and you anything know. he enjoyed was taken. And I get it. I get it. But at that Danny, time, I thought, well, let's, let's touch on that really quick, right? Like you're, we're talking about your emotions here. Like we, we know Curtis's journey and you're such a big part of that, obviously, but that just kind of goes to show that you have triggers as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of this, being that caretaker, your anxiety ridden over, you know, what's going to always be happening with your husband here and there and every single day and with every action and move that's taken and right. And so like one, it's interesting to me how like that one thing kind of could set you off. Like, how dare you? All the work we've done, all the work, you know, all, everything yeah. we've been through. It's like, even though, yeah, to the outside world and, and you said it's like, seems silly now, like it's an energy drink, you know, but it, it that, yeah. let's talk about your emotions through some of this as a wife, people are going to want to hear <laughs> that. What did you go through personally? What were your struggles at the same time as you helping Curtis through his struggles? So there are so many. So I want to start with talking about my triggers because I didn't realize that I was going to have any until I realized I did have a lot. And like you said, now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's an energy drink. It really wasn't the end of the world. But that was a trigger to me because I had literally dedicated my life, my sanity, every inch of my my energy to making sure he was okay and to him to make sure he got better and so when i saw that energy drink it almost symbolized like like that he didn't care about all the work that i put in for him yeah it almost made me feel like he was willing to throw it away and he didn't really he wasn't thankful and for a minute, I felt so, I, I felt how I felt a long time ago when all of this started, I felt useless and unwanted. It's very hard being married to an addict in any degree, Yeah. right? And, and if it's a substance, right, you, you feel like you want that control to be able to keep that away from them. And if it's pornography, it's like you, you, you can keep it away to an extent, but you really can't. I mean, nowadays with phones and pockets and things like that. Right. Um, but yeah, as a, as a spouse, you feel such a sense of like no control and everything's out of your control. And it's so difficult to just focus on you and yourself and what you can do through all of it and understand that some of this isn't in your control. Right. Um, but you do have those feelings too of like, no, we, we've got you clean. Like we've got, we've got you clean. It it is about you too, in a sense, right? It's, it's, but it's about you too. And so, especially when it's a substance and you've put all that work in, right. Um, so I can, I can totally see how you would feel like that for sure. I think that that's probably a very, very, very valid feeling is just like, no, every, after everything we've done. Well, and Danny with, uh, like you, 
were able to get Curtis in rehab. You were able to get him help. Like now he has this group around him that's willing, you know, that can help him, can help him with his triggers. Like they're going to really help him. But what did you have? Like, did you, exactly. did you realize you needed some kind of support as well to be able to move forward? So at first, I honestly, like, I thought that our journey would end when he got clean. I really did. I really didn't think that I was going to have any issues. I mean, I, from the hurt that he caused me years and years ago, I did the work. I did the work. I mean, I listened to podcast after podcast. I read um, books and I did the work and I got better. I, I felt better. And then when all of this happened and it all ended, I realized I did the work and I got better in some ways, but a lot of ways, anything that had to do with my husband, I built a wall. Mm-hmm. And how do you get better though? If it keeps happening, you can't. So what do you do? You block it out. Yeah. And so I I didn't realize I had done that. So I had created my own triggers and my own mental blocks because I didn't know how else to survive. Right. So now at, at the tail end of all of this, you know, he's, he starts changing. Like, I mean, these meetings were miracles he changed fast I mean I like I always I joke about this but it's not really a joke I literally feel like my husband left and my high school boyfriend walked in the door (laughs) and he treats me like that again like he always treated me like a queen and he lost that for a long time and now he's back to that and I felt amazing and he's doing so good with his healing and he's a good person and he's nice and he's sweet and he's patient and then I was starting to realize well all these things like my anxiety and my short fuse and my temper that I got because of his situation. Yeah. They didn't go away just because his did. Right. So now I'm the parent with no patience and I'm the parent that gets mad kind of easy. And I hate feeling like that. And for a, a hot minute, I mean like a hot minute, I felt like I was being left behind. Um, like, Oh good. You're getting better, but I'm left a shit show yes, here now. Yes. Okay. And, and so get this, I, at one point I was such a mess knowing that he was, it sounds selfish. Ah, I don't know how else to say it though. He was better than me now. So I felt lost because I wasn't, I was used to being the better person, the better parent, the better everything. And now he is, I was like, crap, he's going to leave me. And that freaked me out because I'm like, you know what? No, I did not just put in eight, nine years of work and not just work, hard work Mm -hmm. and dedication for you to leave me when you get better because I'm having it rough. In all reality, he was not going to leave me. (laughs) 
just want to throw that out there. But I felt like he was, you know, I felt like, well, now I'm the shit show and you're like this great parent and great husband. Like, what are you doing waiting for me now? Like, are we going to really waste another eight years on making me better now? Yeah. And those insecurities can drag you down to the depths of hell. Oh, and they did. I was a wreck and he went. So while he was at his meetings, he told his therapist, you know, Danny's really struggling. And his therapist said, does she feel like you're improving really fast? And she feels like you're better than her now. (laughs) And when Curtis came home and told me that, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Why do I not know him? How does he know what I'm feeling? Because, you know, I didn't, almost like in the beginning when I said, I felt like Curtis was the only person that, who was addicted to drugs due to a doctor. I felt like I was the only wife going through this. Yes. Even though if I really thought about it, I would know. Obviously, I wasn't. But it's how I felt at the time. I really did feel like, you know, I was the only person going through that. And when I look back and I think about all I've seen and all I watched him go through, I mean, some of these withdrawals, you guys, I would be up all night just because he would start to twitch and his arm would jolt like, and almost like hit me. (laughs) And I would just watch him because I was afraid that he was going to have a seizure or accidentally hurt me in my sleep. I mean, I watched him have tremors to the point where he couldn't even write his name on a piece of paper. I watched him struggle to walk up the stairs and even get his clothes off to get in the shower. I watched, I watched my husband wither away and then I watched him heal and then I'm looking at myself thinking, like, what do I have to bitch about, first off? And second off, why am I so damaged now? Like, why, why am I, why do I have all these awful triggers and things that just piss me off or freak me out or, you know, make me cry? Why is it like that? So we went and saw this therapist. He he told Curtis that it's time for me to come to therapy with him. And I was scared because I felt like, you know, it, it could be kind of like, I don't know, scary to have his therapist and him talking to me. I thought they were going to just be pointing out all the things I'm doing wrong or what I did wrong to like somewhat enable him throughout all of this. Because I look back and that is, one of my regrets, I feel like I never said no because I didn't want to be like a mother. I wanted him to be his own adult. So I never said no. Yeah, I hear that. And so I was afraid. I, I was afraid that I was going to get like ridiculed for that. And this therapist brought me in. And as people are listening to this, I hope you listen to this. And I want you to take it as if I'm telling you this. Should have or shouldn't have should not ever be in your vocabulary they are not allowed so he told me i don't while you're in here and even when you leave i don't ever want to hear you say i should have or shouldn't have he told me the things that you did the things that you said and the walls you built were you protecting yourself and what you had to do to survive and you survived. So be proud of that. 
and it clicked for me because I thought, wow, like I really was in survival mode. Nobody gave me a handbook on how to handle a husband that has an addiction. No one gave me a handbook on how to act and what to say. And nobody told me I had to figure out how he was, what he needed and how I could cope and get through life with him. And I did, even though it was negative things, I'm here, I survived. So then this is the next part he told me that made me really like, uh, made me really emotional. He said, this is not Curtis's journey. And this is not Curtis's healing process. This is your guys's journey and your guys's healing process. He said, you are hurt too. His addiction caused you pain. So he's healing from his addiction and you're healing from your pain. And this journey is of you getting him through his addiction. Now he gets to help you through your journey of getting through all of these walls that you put up and these triggers. He gets to help you now. And I felt a huge weight off my shoulder. I literally felt like I could breathe again because... You know that song? Oh, I can't even think of the words now. I was singing it the other day and I was like, wow, that is so powerful. It's saying, um, oh, I'm Supergirl and I'm here to save the world, but who's going to save me? Yeah. Who's going to save me? Yeah. I, I literally, I sang that like 10 times the other day because I was like, holy crap, that's how I feel. I literally, I saved you. I saved him. But who's going to take care of me now? I'm drained. I'm exhausted. I'm an emotional wreck. I've got triggers up the freaking wall. I, I, I'm, I have walls. I don't know what I'm doing in life right now. Who's going to help me now? Yeah. And now <laughs> I see he is. He's helping me. I mean, I, the other day, here's, here's a really, really good example of what I mean. The other day, Curtis was taking a nap on our bed. And I was on our bed watching a show. And I'm sorry, but if you can watch a show without eating salt and vinegar chips, you're crazy. But I went downstairs to get salt and vinegar chips and I instantly thought, oh, like, he's going to get mad if he hears me eating chips and he's trying to take a nap. So I, like, open it like a total stab, like, so slow and so careful. And I, like, slowly put my hand in the bag, and I'm, like, slowly eating them. And finally he goes, and I thought he was asleep. I'm, like, oh, I'm doing good. He can't even hear me. He goes, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> shit, he heard. He's, like, what are you doing? I'm, like, I was just trying to be quiet. He's, like, why? I'm, like, because I didn't want to make you mad. He's, like, for eating chips? Like he was so confused, but if this would have happened five years ago, he would have been like, what the heck, Danny? Why are you eating chips in here? I'm trying to take a nap. So that's just something that I, that's a wall I put up. I was like, you know, something so simple and dumb. Or yeah, girl, you definitely I, have some PTSD for sure. And anybody would, yeah. anybody would in your journey. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing I feel like I can relate to this being married to an addict before myself, um, not in the same sense, but you do, no matter what, even if that marriage dissolves, right? Let's say there's listeners out there where they've experienced what you're experiencing, but their marriage didn't make it through. Um, you still, unfortunately, walk away with those PTSDs and those triggers and those insecurities and all of it. And that's kind of like... Yeah. 
you know, that that's a real thing. And so then we have to step away and learn how to love ourselves again and take care of ourselves yes. again, with or without that spouse, because it's something that is so true out there for many people. And even though I walked away and didn't make that marriage work, you know, with an addict to, to this day, I still have triggers to this day. I still have triggers of certain things and comparison issues and things like that. Right. Where it's like, what the yeah. I haven't been in this marriage, that marriage for seven years. What am I doing? And, but it, it's crazy how strong those things stick with your brain. Yes. That's what I was going to say. You need to be easy on yourself. And I think you're doing a great job and it's not easy for anybody out there going through it. Um, and, you know, and, and just you here telling your story is such a courageous part of your healing and helping other women, wives, spouses out there understand that they aren't alone. And we really thank you for that. Yeah, really absolutely. That. And we again, thank Curtis so much for allowing his journey to be shared as well as yours. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he's excited to, to be able to help people, you know, for people to know that this is not something that you have to go through by yourself. I mean, in his meetings, he would hear like, there's a police officer in his group. There's a, there's a bunch of nurses in his group. There's a doctor in his group and all these people they got on these medications because they hurt their back in a car accident or they broke their knee playing a sport. Right. Stuff like that. Innocently. Yes, exactly. And it, it's not their fault, but that's the cards they were dealt. So they're dealing with it now. Exactly. And you know, it's just like anybody who has anything, if you, you know, you didn't choose to get cancer, but you survived it. So be proud of that. Right. Same type of thing. And, and so I, it's, it's, it's an important for everybody to know. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a part of your journey. Yep. And if you can get through it, that is unbelievable. And asking for help, there's no shame. Amen to that. You guys, if you are struggling with some of these, if you're struggling with a loved one that's addicted or you're going through an addiction yourself, please reach out to Danny and Curtis. They would be more than happy to talk to you, to go through what they went through, to try to, you know, give some more history and, you know, they, they are there for you. So definitely reach out to Curtis and Danny for sure. Danny, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This Absolutely. And Curtis, like you guys are so strong and it's, it's, this story is amazing. So we appreciate it so much. And it's thank a story you. that really needs to be told. Yes, I agree. Totally agree. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Until next time, you guys, let's keep it real.